You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome again to America's Web Radio. On this week's program, we are once again not going to talk about health care because free market health care is not possible in today's political environment. What I want to do is continue with the discussions that we've had the last few weeks, which is now becoming a dominant discussion in many of the cable talk show programs. And it is about Marxism and the recognition that Marxism, American Marxism, as described by Mark Levine in several programs he's put on and his book called American Marxism, is something that we need to know about before we can get to free markets. The reality is that the socialists slash Marxists slash progressives are very smart people who change terms, change definitions as we try to figure them out and try to stop them. They're like termites that continuously work to undermine our economy, to undermine our cohesion, to undermine the American dream, to undermine every aspect of our institutions by just claiming that they are racist, that they include uh, underlying white privilege that gives one group favor over another. They also talk about people who are woke, people who are understanding, if you will, the language of the left and trying to make everybody else force to understand and go by their language. It's a matter of control. And so what I want to talk about today is this whole idea of political correctness. And I've got a very special guest today that I think is going to be very important for everyone to listen carefully to. His name is Jordan Peterson, and he's been looking at this issue for many years and speaking around the world on this topic of wokeism and the idea of Marxism, and in particular, what many of the current politicians in Washington, the squad, the Biden administration, the people pulling the strings in the Democratic Party these days, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Sumer and the rest of the leadership, that they continue to use a new term many times that you might hear or describe, many people will describe them as postmodernists. And the postmodernists are basically the same as the American Marxists. And I want our speaker today to give us a clear understanding, a clear definition of many of these terms so that we'll understand. But let's start with the idea of wokeness. Professor Peterson, tell us what your definition is of wokeness and some of the problems or issues that it creates. I want to talk to you about what is politically correct and what is politically incorrect. And by politically incorrect, I mean wrong. But we'll start with what is politically correct. As far as I can tell, political correctness is an a paradoxical amalgam of postmodernism, which originated as a form of philosophy and literary criticism, and Marxism or neo-Marxism. Well, Professor, that's certainly what we've heard over the last several months from other speakers on this program, that postmodernism is really just another form or another way of expressing Marxism. So tell us how you define postmodernism. So let's start with postmodernism. 
The first thing to understand about the postmodernists are that they are by no means unintelligent. Uh, quite the contrary. Um, that doesn't mean they're correct by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it certainly means that they're more than able to put together a, an argument that's difficult to disentangle. And so we'll start with the, what I think is the most central power, the most powerful central claim of postmodernism. The claim is something like there is an infinite number of ways to interpret any even finite set of phenomena. The world is so complex that perceiving it appears virtually impossible, technically speaking. There's a, there's a near infinite number of ways to, to perceive and interpret a finite number of phenomena. Now, you see, the thing that's interesting about that claim is that you can use it to mount an assault on any interpretation of anything whatsoever because there is a tremendous variability in the number of interpretations that you could bring to bear on a situation, then you can instantly jump to the conclusion or expound the proposition that none of those interpretations should be privileged above above any others. The reason it's wrong is because although there is a very large number of potential interpretations of the world, that does not mean that there is an equally large number of viable interpretations of the world. So let me um, do some interpretation here of what you've just said, that there are, there's no truth that the postmodernists slash Marxists don't believe in truth. And we've heard that before, again, from other speakers said in a different but very similar way, and that you can interpret anything you want in various ways, and you, my truth is is not your truth, your truth is not my truth, so I can make any claim I want, including the claim that everything is evil, because that's just my truth. Whether it is reality or not doesn't matter, but I can make up whatever I want, which I guess is a good reason why a lot of lawyers are liberal Marxist socialists, because they're used to arguing uh, many points of view without really believing in any one particular point of view. So let's start with that and then try to describe to me of all these different points of view, and you say only some of them are viable, how does one in the reality, in the real world, narrow those down uh, to ones that are worth debating? There's, there's tremendous constraints on the manner in which we can interpret the world from any realistic perspective. So the criticism that there are an infinite number of interpretations falls apart on closer examination. So that's the, that's the first place that the postmodernists are seriously wrong. They radically underestimated the intrinsic constraints on, on, on interpretation. Well, let me jump in here because, as you just said and that we've heard before, um, reality, truth doesn't really matter. Everything is relative to the Marxist slash postmodernist. So if we go from that, what's the next step in trying to understand the postmodernist um, slash uh, Marxist? The central claim of Marxism, um, the postmodernism and Marxism tend to be aligned, which is a very strange thing, is that the best way to view the world is through the lens of oppressed and oppressor, oppressor and oppressed. Now, the funny thing about that is, if you're a postmodernist, is that that's actually an interpretation, right? It's a Marxist interpretation, and the interpretation is that the best way to look at the world is through the lens of oppressor versus oppressed, but if you're a postmodernist, you don't get to have a canonical interpretation, because your whole damn theory is predicated on the notion that you don't get to have a canonical interpretation, because no interpretation is better than any other interpretation. So then you might ask, well, apart from the fact that the infinite number of interpretations argument is wrong in any practical sense, 
Why in the world would you allow your postmodern deconstructionist philosophy to remain nested in Marxism? Well, I think we must know some of that from your comments, and that is that the two uh, terms are kind of aligned with the postmodern and the Marxist having the same objective, that they want to start with this idea of identity politics to kind of divide the population, to create chaos, to create confusion, to create conflict, so that we can move away from capitalism, from freedom, from liberty, from personal property, to some new level of government that I want to talk about a little bit more where that goes, but isn't that true about this whole idea of identity politics? And if you look at the intellectual history of the postmodern movement, which expanded radic- rapidly in the 1970s, you find that it's no secret that the postmodernists emerged out of an, an, an underlying Marxist framework, and never they didn't abandon it, they merely modified it. So it, it went from uh, bourgeoisie against proletariat to you know, one identity group after, against the other, but it was still oppressor-oppressed narrative. It's just a sleight of hand. Okay, so now we know that both groups' central tenet, other than that they ignore truth, is that they are somehow combined at the hip. And why would you connect those two different groups? Why would people in the postmodern movement adopt um, Marxism? So the question is, well, why in the world, if you make the central claim that no narrative is to be privileged, why in the world would you accept your alliance with Marxism? And so the first answer to that might be the optimistic one, which is that the postmodernists and the radicals who are driving the politically correct movement are actually sincere in their desire to help the oppressed. And so we could say, having established the fact that there's an absolute plethora of interpretations and dispensing with the notion that any of those are canonical or valued above any others, we can still act like decent human beings and try to take care of people who are less fortunate than us. Now, as an intellectual argument, that's a really bad one because you don't get to have the first proposition and the second proposition simultaneously. But I would also say that respect for coherence and logic is not the strong suit of postmodernists, and that's actually a technical part of their theory. Okay, so you're saying the best interpretation is that the postmodernists and the Marxists are sincerely interested in compassion, of helping the oppressed people. Tell me what your thinking is about whether that's true or not. So, but the problem with that theory, as far as I can tell, and this actually happens to be a big problem, was that by the late, late 1960s, finally had to agree that the evidence what pouring in from places like the Maoist China and the Stalinist Soviet Union or the post-Stalinist Soviet Union were revealing abhorrent political practices on such an, at, such an, at such a level of magnitude and undeniability that even a French intellectual had to admit that there was something wrong. And so by the end of the 1960s, it became impossible to simultaneously claim that you actually had concern for the oppressed, or even for the oppressor for that matter, and also claim that you would abide by the tenets of Marxism as a functional economic and political doctrine. No one would do that. It is hard to believe that those of us who believe in capitalism having raised people up from poverty like no other system, that people would adopt Marxism as a way to be compassionate when capitalism Free markets is the most compassionate system ever developed. Do you agree with that? 
So I don't buy the postmodern argument that it's compassion that's driving the postmodern alliance with Marxism. I don't buy that a bit because I think that if, these, if, if the postmodernists were compassionate and they were using that as the default aim in their life, let's say, because they don't have any other aim because of their postmodern relativism, you'd have to accept the compassion idea. But because they're ignoring the historical reality that the doctrines that they're trying to put into practice were murderous beyond belief, then I can't accept the argument that it's compassion that's driving it. So it's wrong that way, too. So what's the alternative, I guess? What's the alternative? Okay, Professor Peterson, that's a good place to stop for a commercial break. As we go into the next session, let's get into that truth about what postmodernism and Marxism, socialism, progressivism, any of those isms, what they're really about, because you just dismantled their whole argument about being for compassion when the real issue, the real system, the real ideology for compassion has been capitalism and free markets as expressed in the United States for over 200 years now. We haven't had the kind of Stalinist death, the kind of Mao deaths. So let's come back and let's explore that next item after this commercial break. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we're talking about the connection between postmodernism and Marxism. And before you think it's just an academic discussion, it's not. This is something very relevant to today's politics. If you're into politics and trying to understand where this radical Democratic Party is coming from, you need to understand the terms that I never thought we'd be talking about in the United States. Because this new generation, especially the young people who have had been brainwashed, have had propaganda pumped into them by our educational system, especially the postgraduate education system and our colleges, and now working its way down into high school and middle school and elementary school, we need to understand what's really going on because we can't put our head in the sand any longer. This is such an important impact on the future of our country. These young people don't seem to have any sense of history of knowing how brutal and how uncompassionate socialism, Marxism, communism has been wherever it's been tried. Now, we can say that, but it seems like the younger generation doesn't believe it because they didn't live through it. So today we're talking to Professor Jordan Peterson, and he's giving us the perspective on the postmodern Marxist Democratic Party, talking about politically correct, the wokeism of the party, 
But now we want to turn to, because he's completely in our previous session, dismantled the idea that all this is about compassion, which is the words that they tend to use, the cover, if you will, for where we're really going. And there may be some people who believe that, but that would be what Stalin called the useful idiots. So, Professor, have we learned anything from history? Has the new generation really learned anything about the history of socialism and Marxism? But it isn't obvious that we have. And it's certainly not obvious that the postmodernists that, that uh, let's say, infest the modern universities have been willing to learn anything at all from 20th century history. Not least the lesson that the egalitarian and equal, equity-oriented doctrines that they're attempting to foist upon young people in, 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 in this cult-like educational manner are anything but murderous. Wow, let me jump in here. That's a pretty strong claim that they're nothing but murderous. Can you educate the population that might listen to this at some point, our audience, the younger people out there, uh, maybe they have their children listen to this? Because that sounds pretty extremist. Can you quote from any Marxist doctrine that nails that issue of them just being murderous and bloodthirsty? We shall wreak vengeance and abuse on all whose equals we are not. Thus do the tarantula hearts vow, and will to equality shall henceforth be the name for virtue. And against all that has power, we want to raise our clamor. You preachers of equality, the tyrant mania of impotence clamors thus out of you for equality. Your most secret ambition is to be tyrants and shroud themselves, shroud yourselves in words of virtue. Wow, that's a pretty clear understanding of what they want. It's just pure power covered with the idea of compassion, egalitarianism, solidarity, all those words used by the left that many of us know is just a ruse for gaining more and more power. You know, it used to be that when I spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., it was about power and money. And it just seems now it's about pure, raw power. Is that how it seems to you? Is that the explanation that you pick up on from this kind of analysis, this kind of pulling back the curtain on what Marxist, neo-Marxist, postmodernism, progressivism is really all about? To me, actually explains the paradoxical, the perverse paradoxes that sit at the bottom of the otherwise ununderstandable union between the postmodernists and the Marxists. So you lay out the argument again like this. The postmodernists have it that there are no canonical interpretations of the world. I already told you why that's a foolish, a foolish stance in my estimation. But even assuming it's true, then what that would mean is that you don't get to ally yourself with doctrines such as Marxism. But of course, the postmodernists do. And so what that means is because you can't come up with a logical explanation for that let's call it unholy union, you have to look elsewhere for an explanation. But you can't look to compassion itself, which is the explanation that's offered, because the doctrines that are being promoted to be implemented in the service of mankind have demonstrated themselves, as few other doctrines ever have, as murderous and tyrannical beyond belief. So you don't get that. So then what? What's left over? Okay, so you made the case that there is no link between the postmodernists and the Marxists, the progressives, call it what you will, ism, 
It's not about compassion, although that is the public face. That is what the media tries to portray. That's what you hear constantly from the politicians. So what's the real connection between why these groups kind of connect? Well, here's another thing that's interesting about the postmodernists. In their world, there's nothing but power, right? Nothing exists but power. And so the landscape for the postmodernists is that the world is a sequence of pyramids of hierarchies of power, all of them equally unjust and unreliable, let's say, because there's an infinite number of interpretations, and all that is establishing the relationship within those hierarchies and between those hierarchies is power. Now, you know, obviously that's a conclusion that is cynical beyond comprehension and reprehensible beyond belief, not least because it's so, it, it reduces a very complex reality to a very simple, simple, single cause. But it also, the thing is, I've been trying to figure out why this emphasis on power above all else. Well, you think, well, the basic claim of, of an infinite number of interpretations is incorrect. There's no logical reason for the relationship between postmodernism and Marxism. There's no logical reason to believe on the face of the evidence that that's driven by compassion. It's allied with this sense that nothing exists but power. Okay, so you made the point several times very vividly and very direct. And I think with a lot of passion yourself that it is not about compassion, this Marxism, uh, postmodernism. What do you think about it being sort of just on the basis of envy that they develop these theories and then say it's about compassion for everybody else. But if it's really about their own envy and they can set up any scenario they want because there's no um, truth, everything is relative. So they can set up their own truth, their own hierarchy, as you described it, so that it would ultimately benefit the Marxists that have been proposing all this. Does that make any sense to you? And they notice that there are others who are respected perhaps more than they are, and there are others that have perhaps more than they are, and that goods are inequitably distributed beyond them. And the consequence of that is the emergence of the tremendous resentment. The desire of that resentment is to pull down the hierarchies by criticizing them. That's the motivation for positing the uh, infinite number of potential interpretations, because if there's an infinite number of potential interpretations and your interpretation privileges you to a particular position of power and I can undermine your claim to the validity of that interpretation, then I can logically demolish your claim that you deserve whatever power, authority, privilege, etc. goes along with that position. While it also allows me to usurp it. It allows me to use it for my own purposes. It allows me to take power and control. And since the postmodernists have already claimed that all that exists is power, why should we assume that there is anything whatsoever that motivates them, especially given the other incoherent paradoxes that are are a part and parcel of the doctrine and its alliance with Marxism? Why should we assume that it is anything at all other than the naked will to power that motivates and activates the doctrine? Well, Professor, I think as they say, you've hit the nail on the head. It is all about power. That's what they're really interested in as Marxists, not compassion, not equal distribution of wealth. It's all about creating the envy, the chaos, the confusion in order for them to say your your theory of 
governance, your ideology is no better than mine. And we're going to try to force the adoption of mine under the terms of compassion and uh, bettering of society. But the reality is that I'm going to gain power and you're going to lose power. And the power that I gain is not going to be for the benefit of the people. As your power has proven to be, my power has not, but I need the power for myself, regardless of what's happened in the past of killing the general population, the people who were in power, the uh, uh, Soviet Union leadership, the leadership in China, the leadership of Pol, the leadership in Cuba, the leadership in Venezuela. They had pretty good lives. And so that's what I'm really after as a Marxist. Isn't that the correct interpretation. I haven't been able to figure out any way out of the logical argument that I just presented to you. And if that argument is correct, then that's a diagnosis for why, what's happening in the political correct world, and actually what its motivations are. And I believe that my argument is, it's accurate. It's accurate. And it's destroying the universities. And it's invading the rest of our society. And the idea that there's something good behind it, that's a dangerous idea. I don't think so. It's resentment and the demand for power, disguising itself most reprehensibly as compassion. And it's time for the mask of that to be taken off and things set straight before we walk further down a path that will lead to no good than we've already walked down. Well, Professor, I hope that your work raises up the consciousness of the American people, that silent majority, because... People like Mark Levine have told us that we're not just walking down a path that we should turn around from, that we've fallen into the abyss because of our lackadaisical approach and understanding and kind of going on with our own normal lives that we haven't paid much attention. Now, let me wrap up with the last um, section of talking about your political correctness. We started off this whole interview with the idea of wokeness. And you've been fairly adamant about not using the language of the wokeness, especially around uh, gender pronouns. Give us some idea of what you have said and what you've done uh, to avoid and ignore wokeness and why. It's that when you cede linguistic territory, especially by legislative fiat, to your ideological opponents, they win. And as far as I'm concerned, they're not going to win because I'm, by getting me to say what they want me to say, because I'm not going to say what they want me to say. Now, I never refuse to address any student whatsoever by any pronoun at all. Legislated compelled speech had also instantiated a postmodern neo-Marxist social constructionist view of gender into our legal fabric. So, Professor, given that you are a professor and you're not a politician, You're just seeking the truth. You're not doing Republican or Democrat. You're just seeking the truth about Marxism. How were your comments uh, taken? What kind of responses did you get? I was I was challenged with in relationship to my potential bigotry and racism and all the other things that are casually thrown at people when they make a public statement about such things. Professor Jordan Peterson, thank you so much for this presentation, for your seeking of the truth, not being afraid to say it, even if. You get the blowback from the typical social media that it is the leftists, the Marxists, the postmodernists, the progressives that are so mean-spirited that they don't want to talk about anything. They don't want to debate ideas. They just want to attack 
if you say something that they don't agree with and they want to legislatively try to shut you down. So thank you very much. Let's take a quick break for a commercial. We're going to come back for more of this kind of discussion on postmodernism and Marxism. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we're talking to Professor Jordan Peterson. He's a great thinker about politics, but, you know, one of the most important underlying educational credentials of Professor Peterson is that he is a psychologist, And as such, he looks at the world from that psychological perspective, which many of us on the right kind of ignore at times, psychology, we kind of think it's a soft science, but it really has come to the forefront in recent years. And I think it's really important to talk to Dr. Peterson with that credential about his view of the world and how it's structured, how the politics is structured. So he, I think his his basic theme is to tell us about hierarchies, hierarchies of power, hierarchies of government, and the political significance of those structures, and the psychological differences between Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberal, and give us some insight as to how and why people vote in a certain way. I think this is extremely important since what we've been talking about is about postmodernism and Marxism. So his views on that now are well known that we've been talking about for the first half of this hour. So now let's kind of turn the tables a little bit and take a look at what's the psychology behind people who may want to be in a political structure, a hierarchy, if you will, that's either capitalist or is Marxist? What drives people's thinking as they think about where they want to go and who they want to associate with and why they might vote in certain ways? So, Professor Peterson, give us a little bit of background on what you want to talk to us about here in terms of hierarchy and the political significance of that. I think I'm going to talk to you today a little bit about hierarchy. It's a... and. I want to talk about the political significance of that, and I think it sheds light on, on the political, on, on, on the nature of political debate itself, and maybe deeper light on why temperamental factors might contribute to political, political framing and, and perception. Because we know that people tend to vote their temperament, although there, there are other reasons that influence their political allegiance and their voting behavior. Great, that's exactly the topic I think our audience might be interested in. 
why people vote the way they do, or why people vote at all. Why do we take actions to go from where we are to where we would like to be? What's your uh, explanation for that? We move forward towards things that we value. So there's two propositions there. The first is that we have to move forward because there are things to move forward to because there are things we need and want. And the second is that to move forward towards something is simultaneously to value it. And so one of the implications of that is that we always live in a framework of value. There's no escaping that. And we're always moving towards a place that in principle has some advantage over the place we're at. Otherwise, why move towards it? And so what that means is that there's no life without value. At least there's no human life without value. Out of necessity. And also, not only out of necessity at the physiological level, but also out of necessity at the psychological level. Because another thing that you might point out, that I think is usefully pointed out, is that not only do you have to move from point A to B in life, but point A is often a very difficult place to be. Okay, Professor, I think our audience, um, even I can understand that, that um, we all have values, uh, personal values. We have wants and needs personally or politically, or uh, we would like to see our government and our politics move in a certain direction. And so I think that that makes a lot of sense. Now, the last point you make is particularly um, important, I think, because we talk about that uh, where we are, where many people are today, is not in the best spot, not the spot that they would like to be. There can be some pain, some anguish, some anxiety, some real negatives to where people are that motivates them to move to a better location. Talk about that aspect of anger that might be in the population. That people who have no purpose in their life are embittered by the difficulties of their life. And they become first bitter and then resentful and then revengeful and then cruel. And there's plenty of places to go past cruel. That's just where you start if you're really on a downhill path. Okay, so you've logically expressed the idea that people can get angry. They want to get from wherever they are to a better spot. If they're not angry, they still might be uh, content or satisfied, but they have dreams and goals and and ambitions to move to a better spot. So wherever they start, there is this psychological, mental, uh, human characteristic to get to something better, to always constantly improve because you have certain values that are important to you. And to reach those values, to optimize those values, you need to make some advancement. But what about the next step? How do you move forward with achieving that goal, that that dream, that aspiration, that moving from point A to point B. How does that work? The second proposition would be, well, if you're going to pursue something of value because you're a social creature, you're going to pursue that thing of value in a social space, and that means you're going to compete and cooperate with people around you in the pursuit of that value. And what that inevitably means is that, given that the pursuit of anything valuable is going to be a collective enterprise that you're going to produce a hierarchy, or maybe more than one hierarchy, but at least a hierarchy of competence in relationship to that pursuit. So it doesn't matter what you decide to pursue. Maybe you're going to do that cooperatively. You're going to find that you and other people vary in your ability to manage that pursuit effectively and, and efficiently. And so there's going to be a hierarchy of people from those who are very good at the pursuit, 
But if it's a valuable pursuit and you pursue it socially, you're going to produce a hierarchy. And the hierarchy is going to be one of competence. And so if you're going to pursue value, then you're going to construct a hierarchy. If you construct a hierarchy, most of the people within that hierarchical structure are a minority of people are going to be fantastically successful at the pursuit, and a very large number are going to stack up at the bottom. So if you're going to have value and you're going to have hierarchy, then you're going to have inequality. And that's a problem. Now, you can't... So now now you have a political divide there. Okay, now you're getting into the meat of what I think our audience wants to hear about, and certainly I want to hear about, and that is what I'm hearing you say is that if you want to pursue anything... If you want to pursue your values, you have to set up a hierarchy, and there's going to be winners and losers in any hierarchy, whether it's capitalism, whether it's Marxism, whether it's socialism, whether it's feudalism, there's going to be a hierarchy. And when you create a hierarchy to get something accomplished, you're going to have winners and losers. So tell me how this fits into, if you will, conservatives versus liberals in their thinking about setting up a hierarchy and the strengths and weaknesses of both conservatives and liberals in operating a hierarchy. So the conservative types say, well, we need the hierarchies. And that's self-evident as far as I'm concerned, given that set of propositions, because if you don't, if you're going to pursue something of value, which you have to and need to, then you're going to produce a hierarchy. The left wing, though, says, and, and to their credit, Yeah, but you have to be very careful with your hierarchies because they tend towards inequality of distribution. That's one problem. Once they're established, they always also tend to a form of tyranny because once a hierarchy of competence has been established, it can be invaded by people who use power as the means to attain status in the hierarchy. And that can corrupt and and destroy even the entire hierarchy. So you have to be on guard for that. Plus, if you're hierarchy becomes too steep in its distribution, so it's too tiny a fraction of people at the top and too great an agglomeration of people at the bottom, especially under conditions of genuine privation, then the people at the bottom, are it's not only unjust and unfair and producing excess suffering, but the people at the bottom have nothing to lose and might as well just flip the hierarchy on its end. It seems to me that that's a decent way of of conceptualizing the political landscape, and that gives a, a that gives you a conceptual framework within which you can put people on the left and right in their proper position. Well, Professor, I totally agree that that's a good conceptual way for myself and our audience to sort of view um, any kind of political structure as being sort of a a hierarchy, a pyramid, if you will, with um, experts at the top who can run or think through issues, um, and they wind up with more benefits than people at the bottom. You can also think about it as a business and having the owners and the bosses and the board at the top and the workers at the bottom to actually get things accomplished. But it also um, harkens back to our earlier discussions uh, in this hour uh, to explain why Marxists are doing what they're doing, because they feel that that pyramid, that hierarchy that you're talking about, is unjust. It creates too many people at the bottom in one sense, but the other sense is they want to create more people at the bottom that are dissatisfied and will want to overthrow the entire hierarchy. So I think that's a good way of thinking about why the chaos and the conflict is created by some in this country, uh, the anarchists, the Marxists, even this, the social progressive Democrats. But I would like to sort of focus for a few minutes, maybe carry into the next session, 
Um, the normal political structure that we've had, without looking at the current extremes that we might have on the left and the right, um, how does this relate to sort of what I would consider normal conservatives and liberals that we have grown up with so far in this country? The conservative temperamental types make very good managers and administrators. That's how they manifest themselves in the world. Essentially, if you set up a hierarchy and it runs on algorithmic, it, it runs algorithmically, then the conservatives will do very well in that structure because they can implement an algorithm and they're very good at implementing. The liberal types are very good at generating new hierarchies. And so, and that's, and that's because they're high in trade openness. They're less conscientious, so they're not suited as well to, to within hierarchy um, operation. But in a functioning economy and in a functioning democracy, I would say, you need both types. You need the liberal types to establish new territory and to put out new values so that new hierarchies might be organized, so that effective um, movement towards those ends might be um, instantiated. And you need the conservatives to actually implement the processes. So what I'm hearing you say in a normal political structure where there's not a lot of extremes in the two political parties. We actually need the skills of both conservatives and liberals to be able to advance society, but it can't be the extremes of the liberals and conservatives. And so a society of only conservatives becomes static, and that's not good because the environment transforms and you have to keep up with it. And a society that's only composed of the left-leaning liberal types is very good at generating all sorts of new possibilities, but very bad at generating all sorts of new actualities. And that the, the and that both sides of that equation, let's say, need need a voice because both of those functions are are valuable, necessary, but also at odds with one another and at permanent odds. And it's also the case that if you have hierarchies, then the poor will always be with you, and that's a that's a that's a chronic functional problem. Professor, let me jump in here quickly uh, so that we can take a commercial break, but. I love the clarity of what you're saying. I love the visual model that you're describing, and I want to get into that a little bit more in our final session. So let's take a quick break for commercials. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry. 
I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final session of America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you are tuned in to Healthcare Insight. But as you know, if you've been listening to this program today or for the past couple of months, we are talking about social issues. We're talking about politics. We're talking about Marxism and trying to get a better understanding since that's the direction that this current administration, the Biden administration, seems to be going. And the country itself, the younger people, seem to be moving towards an acceptance uh, like we've never seen before of socialism slash Marxism slash postmodernism slash neo-Marxism, all sorts of terms that keep changing the terms, but they mean the same thing. So today we're talking with Jordan Peterson. And Professor Peterson has got a very good insight to Marxism, to understanding of people and organizational structures for uh, political uh, means to achieve goals and ambitions of societies, how we organize. And he's talked about the hierarchical structure. Well, now I want to take this last segment and I want to talk about Marxism in particular and the communist manifesto that Marx put together. And I want to delve into what it really means so our audience can have a complete understanding of the problems of Marx, the fallacies of Marx, so that as you get to debate, maybe your college student that's coming home or a neighbor who's bought into all this Marxist socialist fantasy or to your Democratic neighbor who really doesn't understand how they're being used as useful idiots that their voting patterns are supporting the concept of moving towards this kind of Marxist, socialist, centralized control. So let's talk uh, this session uh, to uh, Professor Peterson. And Professor, tell us a little bit more about your actual reading of the uh, Communist Manifesto. I've rarely read a tract that made as many errors per sentence, conceptual errors per sentence, as the Communist Manifesto. And I also understand that the Communist Manifesto was a call for revolution and not a standard logical argument. But that notwithstanding, what, what struck me about the Communist Manifesto was for truths that are basically held as self-evident by the authors. And um, they're truths that are presented in some sense as unquestioned. The essence of this doctrine is still held as sacrosanct by a large proportion of academics, probably... Um, are among the most, what would you call, guilty of that particular <laughs> sin. Okay, Professor, so let's delve into the Marxist philosophy. I know that you have referenced the hierarchy, the natural order of some hierarchy to create a governmental structure, to uh, advance and improve civilization, um, how does Marxist specifically look at this idea of uh, an economic hierarchy 
and class struggles. History is to be viewed primarily as an economic class struggle. The idea that one of the driving forces between history is hierarchical struggle is absolutely true. Organisms of all sorts organize themselves into hierarchies. And one of the problems with hierarchies is that they tend to arrange themselves into a winner-take-all situation. And so, and that, that is implicit in some sense in Marx, Marx's thinking, because of course Marx believed that in a capitalist society, capital would accumulate in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And that actually is in keeping with the nature of hierarchical organizations. The, so there's, the, there's accuracy in the accusation that that is an f- eternal form of motivation for struggle, but it's an underestimation of the seriousness of the problem because it attributes it to the structure of human societies rather than the deeper reality of the existence of hierarchical structures per se. Professor, if I understand what you're saying is that Marx tries to create a conflict between uh, those people at the top and those people at the bottom. And what you're saying is that all humans have to organize themselves to accomplish tasks in some sort of a, a pyramid or a hierarchy, and that every system so designed is going to have that same issue and conflicts. It's just inherent in the structure of human beings. So there has to be something more uh, and the purpose of Marx uh, to sort of focus on capitalism as the real issue here of class conflict, uh, economic conflict, whatever the conflict is, that there's got to be more to it than that because any system, even a Marxist pure system, if they could ever fully define it, would have those kinds of class conflicts, which we see around the world where Marx actually has been implemented. Is that what you're saying? This ancient problem of hierarchical structure is clearly not attributable to capitalism because it existed long in human history before capitalism existed and then it predated human history itself. So the question then arises, why would you necessarily, at least implicitly, link the class struggle with capitalism given that it's a far deeper problem. And now, it's also, you've got to understand that this is a deeper problem for people on the left, not just for people on the right. It is the case that hierarchical structures dispossess those people who are at the bottom. But the other thing that Marx didn't seem to take into account is that there, there, there are far more reasons that human beings struggle than their economic class struggle. Okay, so if one of the fundamental problems with Marxism is that they think everything is about economics... Um, what do you think are the real conflicts that people have to face in the real world if it's not about economics as uh, proposed by Marx? The primary conflict, as far as I'm concerned, or a primary conflict that human beings engage in is the struggle for life in a cruel and harsh natural world. And it's as if... It's as if that doesn't exist in the Marxist domain. If human beings have a problem, it's because there's a class struggle that's essentially economic. It's like, no, human beings have problems because we come into the life starving and lonesome. And we have to solve that problem continually. And we make our social arrangements, at least in part, to ameliorate that as well as to, as to well, upon occasion, exacerbate it. And so there's also very little understanding in the Communist Manifesto that any of the 
like, say, hierarchical organizations that human beings have put together might have a positive element. And that's an absolute catastrophe because hierarchical structures are actually necessary to solve complicated social problems. We have to organize ourselves in some manner. Okay, so you pointed out that the major flaw of Marxism is that they think everything is about economics and that they ignore the good of putting together a structure that has to be in place to advance any kind of civilization or governmental structure and that there's always going to be a bottom rung as well as the top rung that are the elite, if you will, that run the system efficiently, hopefully not for power, but for the good of everybody or as many people as possible. So what are the other problems that Marx uh, ignores? Marx also assumes that you can Think about history as a binary class struggle with clear divisions between, say, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And that's actually a problem because it's not so easy to make a firm division between who's exploiter and who's um, exploitee, let's say, um, because it's not obvious. So let me jump in here for a minute because you've hit on something that is very topical and that is trying to figure out who's the exploiter and who's being exploited, who's the oppressor and who's being oppressed, who's the victim, because we all fall into different categories at different times, both in our personal history and in the history of the country and the history of the world. Um, many of my family were very much oppressed hundreds of years ago that drove them out of Europe to come to the United States. So should I claim to be a victim of, of the uh, historical worldly system, or am I an oppressor because I'm a, I'm a white male? Uh, so tell me more about this idea of what some would call tribalism and the idea of who is the oppressor. It turned out that you could fragment people into multiple identities, and that, that's a fairly easy thing to do, and you could usually find some axis along which they were part of the oppressor class. It might have been a consequence of their education, or it might have been a consequence of their, of their, of their, uh, of the wealth that they strived to accumulate during their life, or it might have been a consequence of the fact that they had parents or grandparents who were educated or rich, or that they were a member of the priesthood, or that they were socialists, or, anyways, the the listing of how it was possible for you to be bourgeois instead of proletariat. Well, you've really hit the uh, nail on the head again because that's exactly what's happening in today's world, in today's politics, that we have this tribalism, we have conflict and chaos, we have one group against another, and it's easy to find one group, isn't it, that all the evil can be put on that group and all the good on the other group so that uh, you have this constant conflict going back and forth with the uh, identity politics. How do you feel about that that's what's going on in our country today. And that's classic group identity thinking. You know, it's one of the reasons I don't like identity politics is because once you divide people into groups and pit them against one another, it's very easy to assume that all the evil in the world can be attributed to one group, the hypothetical oppressors, and all the good to the other. And Professor, we've only got a few minutes left. Um, probably have you back for a more detailed discussion and more explanation of Marxism so our audience can fully understand uh, the threat that we're currently under in this country. But give me another example of the fallacy uh, of Marxism and the Communist Manifesto. 
Marx also came up with this idea, which is a crazy idea as far as I can tell, uh, of the dictatorship of the proletariat. You could hypothesize that a dictatorship of the proletariat could come about, and that was the the, the first stage in the communist revolution. And remember, this is a call for revolution, and not just revolution, but bloody violent revolution. So, Professor, to summarize this segment, um, it's not so easy as the Marxists would make you think that you cannot clearly identify the oppressor and the oppressed, although in today's political world, the United States is clearly the oppressor is the white male, the angry white male. So that's the pitch that's being made now. But if we were to create a centralized government, whether it's Marxist or just a centralized socialist elite, uh, won't they get just as corrupt as the Marxists say capitalists are? The problem with that, you see, is that because all the evil isn't divided so easily up into oppressor and oppressed, that when you do establish a dictator of the proletariat to the degree that you can do that, I mean, you have to hypothesize that you can take away all the property of the capitalists, you can replace the capitalist class with a minority of pro proletariats, how they're going to be chosen isn't exactly clear in the Communist Manifesto, that none of the people who are from the proletariat class are going to be corrupted by that sudden access to power because they're, well, by definition, good. So, so then you have the good people who are running the world, and you also have them centralized so that they can make decision. And so that's a failure conceptually on both dimensions because, first of all, all the proletariat aren't going to be good. And when you give put people in the same position as the evil capitalists, especially if you believe that social pressure is one of the determining factors of human character, which the Marxists certainly believe, then why wouldn't you assume that the proletariat would immediately become as or more corrupt than the capitalists, which is, of course, I would say exactly what happened every time this experiment was run. Professor Peterson, thank you for giving us some great insights today into Marxism, the failures of Marxism, uh, I hope you'll come back. I hope we'll be able to talk some more in the future. Uh, but right now, we're up against a hard break, and it's time to end this hour. Uh, please, audience, come back and find out more about the true nature of Marxism and this movement that's going on in the country to centralize power in Washington, D.C. We've got to fight it or we will lose our country. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.